Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. My special guest today is James Walsh. I'm sitting here right now in Weekapog, Rhode Island with James Walsh. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing great, Brad. How are you doing? Good. Welcome to Weekapog, Rhode Island. Why, thank you. Can you so, spell Weekapog? I cannot spell Weekapog. You want to take a stab at it? W-E-A-K-A... Uh, uh, <laughs> no, right. Oh, it's actually on your shirt. It's right on my shirt. Hello. <laughs> uh, you want to try it again? So uh, today we're, I'm going a little off format, which is exciting, because I wanted to interview you because you are a playwright. That's right. And you have a new play coming out that's called... Jimmy and Carolyn. Jimmy and Carolyn, but you're also not just a playwright, you're an actor, you've also, you're a screenwriter, you're a TV writer, you did business, you did everything. Well, director. Director. I'm actually leaving on Wednesday to direct sort of the beginnings of a national tour that I've been working on, a piece that was commissioned by the drug company GlaxoSmithKline that is the leading manufacturer of HIV medications. They commissioned a new work about a year ago called As Much As I Can, which is really came out of their research and experiences with the African-American community in southern cities like Jackson, Mississippi, and Atlanta, et cetera, where there is basically what they're calling a hidden HIV epidemic, where the incidence of HIV infection, I think, is two or three times that of any other place. So, really? Yeah, so they conducted a series of case studies and interviews, et cetera, and sort of came up with some amazing stories. And rather than burying them all in a report, they decided to come up with a theatrical way to tell these stories using immersive theater. And they hired a playwright who came up with a, a narrative that includes the lives of some of these men that they feel exemplify sort of the community, where it's at, and what's, what's the problem. It's been very successful, very successful. This is our fourth time doing it. All part of us, all sort of tryout towns for what would presumably, presumably be a bigger national tour nationwide. Wow. Yeah, so it's very interesting. So I'm going down to direct that for the fourth time. Well, speaking of national tours, you did a national tour of Ragtime. Yes, correct? I did. I played Tata. Which yeah. is amazing. I oh. just saw that recently, and it's it's an amazing piece of theater. Oh, you saw it in Maine? Yeah, Gonquit? I saw it in Maine and Gonquit, yeah. and was it was floored by it. I had to write to Stephen Flaherty and just be like, this was incredible piece had of theater. Had you never seen it? I have, but I've, I've forgotten how good it is. It's yeah. like, you, you can see forever. How long did you tour with it? I toured for over a year with it. It was it was one it was one with some wonderful people Kenita Miller, and Quentin Darrington who are both going into Once on This Island right now. Fosti Mumpoint is another you know Broadway veteran. Oh, okay. Matt Cavanaugh was a younger brother. Oh, it's an amazing show. And oh, Tata okay. is just one of those parts. I mean, I could. I'm sure you feel this way too. I mean, there are parts that I could just basically play for the rest of my life. Oh, be, absolutely. Be perfectly happy. Yes. And never want for more. No. Nope. You know? And Tata is definitely one of them. As a matter of fact, when the show closed. I'm sure the folks, people thought I was crazy because I asked them if I could spend an extra hour in the dressing room with my costume so I could say goodbye to them when the show closed. <laughs> they probably didn't think you're crazy. Meanwhile, yeah. back in Weekabog, no, no, seriously, I mean, yeah, but I, I had to, I was so emotional, I couldn't let go of them. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it is weird. Well, that it's is. not that weird. <laughs> no, but also after you had this a great successful career as a performer, you, you. got out of it. 
and did became a businessman. Yeah, well, actually, I started out my career. I graduated from Columbia University in '85 and went to work slash school basically for a wonderful woman named Francine Lefrac, who is a major Broadway producer. She did My One and Only and Crimes of the Heart and uh, Nine among others and I started working with her when she had a, I think she had nine on Broadway and my one and only and within a few years I wound up moving out to California and opening the sort of television part of the company at Warner Brothers and I did very well with that and before long I had my own company at Warner Brothers uh, developing uh, television content movies miniseries that kind of thing so my the first part of my career was doing that mm. and then I left uh, California and came back and that's when I got into performing. So I had already had a whole other career, oh, okay. which I've then now subsequently sort of gone back to. So the last 15 years of my life, I've kind of gone back and forth. And then along the, along the way, I created a computer programming business as well, just right. because, you know, idle hands make devils work. Which is, I think Isn't that the right expression? I think that, well, I've never heard it, but I, I like I, that. <laughs> I like that expression. I like that expression. Well, because you, you. Idle you, hands make devils yeah. work, yeah. Yeah, because you're fascinating because not only are you a great actor and singer and businessman, you're a screenwriter, and Thank now you. you're a, a playwright. That's right, yeah. And do you think each one of them inspires the other? And why not just be tunnel vision on one thing? What about it makes it great for you to be like, have your fingers in 27 pies? Well, I think they're all modes of expression. You know, the, the, the beginning of my career developing television movies and miniseries, that expressed the kind of intellectual side of me. I mean, I, and I, that's what that was all about. It was all about finding new material, finding ideas, finding subject matter, and then creating something from a whole cloth, basically. So every one of these things, the computer business, that was about the math part of my brain. I was a math major at Columbia that's what I went as so I have a real mind for that so each one of these things I think is more a puzzle that I love to they're all like puzzles you know yeah writing a great play is like solving a great puzzle you know or a good play whatever right so does that answer your question no absolutely it does? Okay. no it does and I think one of the things we're talking about is taking your life and your brand into your own hands yeah when it comes to getting yourself out there and and letting people know about a product say let's take Jimmy and Carolyn for yes. example we had the discussion of you were like I'm going to go outside the box and I want to get the word out there one of your suggestions was let's do a podcast about it and I said absolutely what made you think like I need to not rely on other people and say I love the theory you said every day I'm going to think of three ideas to get it out there one might stick and one might not well I just I have you know I'm a restless person I have a restless imagination and I, I don't like to wait for other people to do what I can do faster or mm -hmm. you know and I'm very lucky to have many many friends in many different aspects of the business you met one of them uh, yesterday Kristen and this morning for example when we were talking about this little movie I'd like to cut to promote yes. Weekapog I knew that if I asked Kristen her input she'd have great ideas on what to do so I, I don't know it's just a fun again they're all little puzzles you know things to figure out so I don't like to wait for, I don't like, it's not that I'm a control freak. I don't think yeah, of right. myself as a control freak, but I, I have a lot of ideas and I, why not, you know? 
I don't, I don't like to put my fate into someone else's hands. Well, I think that's... Is that kind of... Th- exactly. And I think so many people spend their life, and especially in show business, waiting for their phone to ring, waiting for someone else to do something for them. And you're saying, no, this is a passion project, and I'm going to just do stuff. That is admirable, and I think that's one reason I wanted to talk about that, is oh. why, why wait for your phone to ring when you can pick it up yourself? Well, and I think your phone is not going to ring until you start creating reasons for people to call you. I mean, I, that sounds simplistic, but I think it's true. Yeah. I think I think a lot of young performers, when they start out, they sort of have this idea that I'm going to be so incredibly talented and gifted that people will just, you know, clamor for my glamour, right? Right. And I don't think it's really that simple. I think you have to create your own kind of force of gravity, you know, and, and attract people to you that are either, it's like hitching a wagon to the star, right? Mm-hmm. You know, or to a star. I just like to create as many opportunities for uh, success as, as possible. That's not really answering your question. but No, it is answering it my is? question. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Like people who when they sign with agents, I'm, you know, this play that I'm directing, a couple of the, the, the kids in the play sign their first agents as a result of, of this show that I'm directing. And I just remind them signing with an agent does not mean that you stop working to promote yourself, you now have to come up with a million, you know, 10 times as many strategies or auditions to give your agents things to follow up on. Right. You know, for example, because so often I'll hear young actors say, oh, my agent couldn't get me in on that or my agent didn't get me appointment or I asked my agent to get me seen and they didn't. That's not really your agent's job. It really isn't. Your agent's job, is, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is you have gone out on enough open calls or whatever and so and so casting director knows you so that when your agent does call and say blah 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 they've already know who they already oh we've seen him several times we really like him yeah that makes your agent look good and that makes you your agent is there to make money really ultimately yeah yeah no the last one of the last jobs i got my agent didn't get me appointment and i booked the job from the open call because i wanted to get seen right you know and i don't know why i wasn't submitted doesn't really matter right what mattered is that you just go get the job or get seen however you can right and I th- think that's amazing about you. So how did this I mean, I've always project- I've always been that way. Like from the very beginning, when I first moved to California, especially in the movie business, you're always trying to convince someone that the idea you have mm-hmm. is worthy of investing ten million dollars in, or it's it's a constantly doing that. And one of the first movies that I sold as an independent producer was a miniseries about Mother Teresa. Oh right, yes. And I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be a no-brainer. I mean, you know, you could play this movie on the moon and people would know who the hell you're talking about. No. So, I mean, I really cut my teeth early on in my career with this, surrounded by people, the producers on the Warner lot, particularly in the television area. I mean, I I just saw how they they were like dogs with bones. I mean, when they had something they believed in, they just did not give up. And all the different ways. And you just can't assume that anyone is going to be a buyer for what you're selling, you know. I learned that early on, and when, you know, I won't go into detail, but selling a movie based on the life of Mother Teresa, I thought would be an interesting sell. It's a fascinating story. And I, I mean, it, I took more chutzpah and... And what, how come you don't ever get defeated? You, you have a personality that nothing gets you defeated. The first thing that happens in your play is you get rejected. That's right. And that's something that like, is so apparent to you in your life that it's the first thing that happens to your character. So you're obviously used to it. I am. Thank you, Brad. No, <laughs> yes, no I just meant that, like, for being, uh, you know what I mean, like however, David Copperfield however, or something. <laughs> however old you are, you have this light and spirit for being in a business that constantly 
beats you up and yet you per persevere, which I think a lot of people throw in the towel early. You live life more than most people I know. Well, I would say that because it's all about why are you doing it? You know, mm -hmm. what are you doing it for? I'm not, I don't do these things because I want to become famous. It's not really, I mean, maybe there was a time in my life when I wanted notoriety and mm -hmm. fame, but now I feel more and more, you know, I mean, I'm of a certain age and how, how who knows how much longer, you know, I'll have here. Yeah. And I might as well just, you know, go for it. Yeah. You know, and these things, there's so much personal satisfaction in it. And there's so much personal satisfaction, for example, in, an, in something like this, Jimmy and Carolyn. I've known the director for 20 years. She's a wonderful director. I've known you. For, I mean, there's no more, there's no greater satisfaction than for me than to produce a house or, you know, whether it's here or in Costa Rica or a play that all of my friends and people I love can go on the journey with. You know, it's yes. a, it creates a vehicle to take a journey. Absolutely. So I guess the reason I'm not defeated is because I'm not doing it for anyone else's approval or, I mean, I used to, but I think I've grown up a lot in the last few years to know that there's a lot of satisfaction in just self-satisfaction. I mean, yeah. that, that doesn't, I mean, I'm proud of the play. I like the play. Yeah. I had a great time writing it, and I'm really proud of it. Well, let's talk about the play. It's about to start rehearsals. Next week. And then it opens at Queen's Theatre on September 15th. Queen's Theatre in the park. That's right. So how did it just, just happen? Because, I mean, you this is your first play, even though you've written a lot of screen stuff. Yeah. And you wrote a musical, The I Librachi. wrote a musical, co-wrote with my partner, Alexander Sheward de Jong. We wrote something called All That Glitters, which is the unauthorized Liberace musical. And that was workshopped in Manhattan about five or six years ago. And all the money was raised you know, to the tune of $15 million to, to, to move it to Broadway. And then it's my, you know, producer's option, the material and the whole thing. And then we were all set to go into the, uh, the Golden Gate in San Francisco as our tryout town. And some of the money fell through and it's been three years waiting for the, you know, I think of this really as my first solo yeah. play that I've written. I started writing it two years ago. It was all based on an experience that happened here in this house where we are right now that I felt was of life changing significance and I just felt compelled to write a play about it and it's interesting because the the journey of writing the play the experience of writing the play has had ramifications well beyond the play in mm. terms of you know in terms of my artistic life I think it's the strongest thing I've written it seems to have more than Mother Teresa I, I think so don't, <laughs> don't tell her but no I think so no I think so in terms of it being its own calling card I mean there's something very exciting when you write something and you don't really the response that you get, yes, it just kind of sells itself. And to be in meetings and have very create wonderful people talking about this like it's their piece now mm -hmm. is very satisfying. I mean, that's the best satisfaction for me that I don't have to push. And to not hear a lot of negative feedback is really great. Yeah, I mean that's amazing. With something like this for two years to have a reading in Los Angeles. Oh yes, yeah. a reading in uh, New York, and then now already having a, your off Broadway premiere. That seems is that fast. For well, we read it in Los Angeles, and that was a very private, it was read at someone's house, my friend uh, Suntis' house. It was a beautiful house in the Hollywood Hills. She's from Boston, so uh, I think she got a kick out of the fact that this play set in Rhode Island was being read in her mm. house in L.A. Anyway, we had Francis Fisher and uh, Gregory, Gregory Harris. Harris reading the two titular roles. The response was really fantastic. From a small group, it was probably 30 people. But to see people, to make people laugh and cry, I mean, it's just the, the greatest experience. Yes. And then we came to New York and Francis came with us. We did another reading at Queens Theatre and you were there for that one. And I think that the theatre got such strong feedback from the reading 
from not friends and family of mine, mm. but from people who are on the subscription list and the reading list, people that you would not think of. Uh, for example, there was a Chinese woman there, I remember, from China, raised in Queens or whatever, and very thick accent, and she came up to me after the play, and it's just tears streaming down her face, telling me how much that was her family, how mm -hmm. that was the family, you know, that's my family, my mother, that's my mother, and I just took that as the biggest compliment that you yes. I could possibly get. That someone in another language and another completely different, you know, uh, background could relate so completely to this family, I thought. And I think that's what happened to the executive director of the theater. I think she saw immediately the potential for her audience. And, and they're always looking to get involved with, they're trying to find the next, you know, they're looking to, it's what's one, one, of, one of the, the best parts of their mission statement I think is that they really are trying to find and produce new work and to give a play a chance like they're giving us is pretty remarkable you know oh, in yes. the city of New York you yes. know so they were behind it 100% and they just I didn't have to do a lot of pushing at all well, that's, that means the material speaks for itself I, I guess so and I think people I know when I saw it I related to the fact of just being a man in midlife dealing with their aging parents and it's the moment where you've had enough. Everyone has, has had that moment. They're anticipating that moment. And this takes place at the moment. And another thing I also loved about it was, even though these parents are very dysfunctional, their 100% acceptance of their gay son and the gay husband right. is never an issue. It's not, that's not what the play is about. And that's also lovely because you're like, you have these people that you think are stuck in one way, but yet are totally free in another way. That's right. They're very enlightened in one way, and yet they're not enlightened about the most personal issues between them. I mean, the dysfunction in their relationship couldn't be more unenlightened, and yet they're actually quite enlightened yeah. about those around them, or open-minded. Yeah, and it's interesting because I wrote this play, and when you write a play from the point of view of yourself as the writer, you think, well, of course, everyone's going to see everything from my point of view. And so I was afraid of how my parents would come across in this yeah. play, because I know how I see them. Well, it's it was quite remarkable how they came across to people and how and I also saw that as another sign of the strength of the piece that there was more dimensionality to it you could take other people's points of view and fill them out a little more completely mm -hmm. I was quite surprised how I don't want to say the least likable character but I thought my character would be the most sympathetic and really <laughs> yeah really <laughs> Really, uh, I thought Mike was I that was I that was that ridiculous? No, no, not at all. I, I was afraid that my parents would not come across sympathetic, and exactly the opposite is true. Yeah, people love my parents, and yeah. they're they just fall in love with them, yeah. and they feel bad for them, and I was not expecting that. Yeah, is this the most personal thing you've ever written? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, a question as. As the writer, and now it's, it's been your baby for two years, you're about to give your child over to a whole new set Foster of people. Foster services. Yes, and new, basically like new parents. I, how are you going to be releasing that and it's going to become not your true story anymore, it's going to become a play? Well, it starts with, first of all, the director, Brooke Ciardelli, who I trust. I mean, I've worked with her several times when she was the artistic director at Northern Stage. I did several of her plays. Trust is the most is the biggest thing for me, mm -hmm. and I trust her completely. So I put the play into someone's hands that I trust completely. Mm -hmm. I trust she knows what I want. I trust she knows where I'm coming from, but I also trust 
that she will do what she has to do to get a group of four actors to put this thing up on its feet in a way that works. Mm-hmm. So I really trust her, and I, that's so I'm not I'm not really that worried about it, and I'm 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 not worried about it's not the right word. I'm excited about the process of seeing what happens when others come in and interpret what you've written because it's an interpretive art form, right? Yes, it is an interpretive yeah. art form, and. There has been a little bit of a journey of my understanding, like, oh, right, the point of putting this play up is not to create a perfect simulation of my world, the way I look, the way they look. It's not really, that's not really what this is about, you right. know? And if you get stuck in that, I think that's when you get into trouble. So I'm, I'm really excited about it, yeah. to be honest. The only thing I would say, Brad, is I know the language of some of it. There's, a, it, there's, there's language in this play that has to work a certain way like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. There's a repartee that yeah. has to go on, and if it's not there, you lose a lot of it. Yeah. You know? So the only thing I would say I'm concerned about are some of the, the technical aspects of how I hear this, these lines delivered to maximize the, yeah. the, the comedy, really, more than anything else. And you're also hearing it in, with a certain accent. I, I am, and the accents are very important. Now, for the characters of... For the only character that is, doesn't... The only character it doesn't matter for doesn't matter with is James because it's there's really no accent but the mother and father have very distinct accents and they're I think they're in to understand the wordplay and how the play works you have to understand the two accents Mm -hmm. because they're very different accents and that's what's interesting when we had our auditions you know actors I'm 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 amazed at how generally they'll think sometimes Mm, yes you're not like that but oh New England well I I knew a guy from Boston so all right, well, I specifically say in the play, Southern New England, not Boston. Yes. Now, that's hard to find. It's not the easiest accent to find online. You know, it just isn't. The accents are very important because Carolyn's accent is different than Jimmy's accent. So the accents are important to me. What I did to that end was I had my mother record two of the speeches in her accent, and I sent that to the woman playing Carolyn, Lisa Harrow. And then I had my father record his speeches in his accent, and I sent that to Sam Sufis for his. So, I mean, I provided them with... Right, with the accent. That's it, yes. you know. Well, one of the reasons you asked me to do this podcast, one, we're friends, mm-hmm. but also you couldn't find anyone to play the role of James. Recently. That's right. And I ended up doing a video submission. And you sure did. I'm excited that I'm playing the role of James. You said congratulations. We'll announce it now here <laughs> that Brad, my friend Brad Bradley will be playing me. No. Uh, and, I, and I couldn't be more excited about it. Yeah. And one of the things I thought would be interesting that you mentioned is that we talked to Brooke about it, is that I've made a, a great career as a musical theater performer and finding out what the difference is between doing musicals and doing plays. And there's also, I think, there's also a, a stigma about one person can't do both. I even found the stigma when you go into TV and film, they see your resume and they think, oh no, uh, he's been on Broadway in a musical, he can't do it. But they see you've been on Broadway in a play, they assume that you can. Where do you think that stigma comes from? Well, I think that stigma, well, first of all, before I answer that question, I wanted to say that, you know, I've had the good fortune of seeing you as an audience member and also being on stage with you we did Mary Poppins together and I played Mr. Banks and you played Bert and I've had the good fortune of being able to experience you in both ways you know as an audience member mm. and, and I have to say the, there were some moments one in particular during those productions of Mary Poppins where I mean I had one of the most profound on stage moments I've had with, with really anyone with you 
So I know you both as someone being on stage with, hitting the tennis ball too, mm-hmm. and watching you. So I would say that the greatest obstacle that I think musical theater people face, particularly people that have the dancer singer strength right. first and foremost is there is a certain self-awareness that comes with being a dancer right you have to be self-aware you have to know that you're on the right count you have to be aware of the lines you're making there's a self-awareness that's part of the job right, right? i mean yes. is that true oh no it's very true you know yes because and it's also a a self-awareness that comes with the awareness of your individual actualization and the group actualization of what you're actually doing. You know, when you're in a number, you're playing a part in a bigger picture, right? right? Okay. And then with singers, of course, being a singer as well, I know that there is a lot of technique behind singing. So there's, as much as you're trying to not think about singing when you're singing, you still have to be aware. There's an awareness that comes, a technical awareness. I think that's the hardest thing because when you're in a play, that you ha- you can't be self-aware like that. You no. just you just cannot be. And I think that's the the thing that makes such good singer dancers is the, often the thing that makes that they struggle with in in a non-musical setting. I don't think the quality of the acting is is the issue. It's just where their mindset is at. You yeah. know, I mean, Patti Lapone is a phenomenal actress. That's why she could play part like Ava Perone. Yes. So she figured out the whole game, right? So I don't think that actors struggle making that tr- transitions because they can't act. I think they struggle making that transition because their attention is in a different place. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. One thing fascinating about my life and just life in general is people talk about it's who you know, it's your connections, but that's also not a bad thing. Like I was going to use an example in my Broadway debut in Steel Pier, in the ensemble with me was Andy Blankenbuehler, Casey Nicola, Joanne Hunter, all of these I didn't know people. that that's how you know all these That's folks. how I know them all. Because oh, I was I was chorus boys with them. I shared dressing rooms with them. Interesting. I was partners with them. And so they see how I work because they worked with me the same way that's how you see you work. Absolutely. And I think so many people lose their worth ethic or they're jerks to the people that they work with or their costume designer. They don't realize that these are the people, your peers are who are going to cast you Absolutely. in years or recommend you in years. Well, and you and I have also shared dressing rooms, right? Yes. So we've had that. I mean, I know you probably better than I know most people in my life. Yes. So, yeah, oh, that's so true. That's so true. And that also extends beyond just the professionalism of the person you also see how the person actually works getting back to your being cast in this play i see how you work so as much as you are a very disciplined in terms of approaching choreography etc i also know that you have a daredevil quality to you that you're all right with dancing upside tap dancing upside down and letting a rip mm. you know you're not afraid to put yourself in situations where you're not going to be in control so, you know what I mean? I, yes, I, I knew do. that about you. I mean, you know, you've worked with people like this, and you find this a lot more in musical theater. You'll do a scene, you'll go off stage, and then the first thing they turn to you and they say, how do you think that went? It's like, I, I don't really know how it went. I, what, what do you mean, how did it go? <laughs> You'd have to ask them. Yeah. You know, the four, the 1,000 people sitting out in the audience. You, your, your self-awareness is not that kind of self-awareness. Right. You, you know what I mean? Yes. What Brooke's talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting too, the whole videotaping thing now. Because uh, I remember I, I videotaped for people and the amount of times you're like, this is bad lighting, this is bad right. hotel room stuff. It's not really always about that. And you have to realize that 
this world today talking about your brand and talking about getting jobs and doing it for yourself. Self-tapes work. They do work. The last two jobs I booked were on self-tapes. Yeah. It's interesting what the goal of a self-tape is, right? So mm -hmm. the goal of the self-tape, you can be misled into thinking, oh, it's to give the bravura, bravura acting performance of all time and perfect for the part. Not necessarily. You know, because I know, we know everyone, for instance, you're in this your case I know everyone that we've seen already right mm -hmm. so I've I, we've seen a, we saw a bunch of people so when we saw your tape it was the in the context of trying to find what we knowing what we didn't want that we've already found and still looking for the thing that we wanted which was a very specific thing which you delivered in that tape and you may not even be aware of it, what it was no you, you know yeah. what I mean so you're better off just being your absolute most authentic self in a situation like that. Yeah. Because you don't know what it was that was missing in the other performances, right? I, I don't. Right. I don't know if I could exactly name it either, but it was there in yours. Well, well I'm glad I didn't get it. No, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Just going back to the, what we were talking about earlier, who you know and your connections is not about who you socialize with and drink with. It's, no, it's not. And it's, it's so it's, I think that that connotation is off there. I mean, when we worked together, I had worked with Kevin Hill 20 years ago, and now I work with him all the time, and you, you didn't realize that he was the assistant director at that time, right. and a lot of people didn't pay attention to him. Now he's the artistic director of two theaters. Of two major theaters. That hire me all the time. So right. it's, he didn't hire me because we, we were social. He hired me because of he knew my worth ethic of what I brought into the room. Right, and I also knew with Brooke, for example, with you, I also knew that throwing your name into the mix with a person who was gonna see even another thing that I wasn't seeing. Do you know, I didn't yes. need her to corroborate what I already saw. I wanted her opinion, mm. and she came at it from a totally different opinion. And, it, and, and I learned about the process. So the thing that I saw in you, working with you, to your point, that I thought, well, this, this, this person could play this part. She saw a whole other thing. Right. You know? So you build upon that. So I want to ask you a question about props. I mean, just we had an interesting talk hmm. last night about props. the importance of props, because there's a prop in your play that I was like, oh, this cardinal's very important. And it reminded me of you with this broken kite in Mary Poppins. That's right. So this is totally an acting thing, but you have so many hats. What was so important about this certain kite that I think is important to actors to realize that however it, it, whatever it takes for you to get to an emotional point, do it, even if it's a certain prop. Well, it's every prop. I'll go back even before the kite. When I did Ragtime, if you recall, he makes a little flip book, right? Yes. So the flip book, he does silhouettes, and when you put them all together in the book, and you go like that, they create a little move, moving silhouette, right? When we started rehearsing Ragtime, it was with Stafford Arima. When we started rehearsing that, I created all this meaning around this book, just very naturally. And the meaning was, because he doesn't give her the book until she gets off the train, you'll recall, yeah. right? And then he shows, so he keeps the book for himself. He puts her on a train and she, uh, theoretically she's gonna leave and she doesn't. He keeps the book because he wanted to create something that when he flipped, it was as if she came to life, you know, she was the moved, right? It was a moving book. And so he created that, <laughs> he created that book so that his daughter would always be with him every time he flipped it, she'd be come to life, right? I love that, but it's not written anywhere in the script, right? No. It doesn't, it's not written anywhere, it's just a book. Right. So I love props that give you that opportunity to create a whole world in your head that's not really there or on the page. And so with the kite in Mary Poppins, 
for those who know the show, Mr. Banks is sort of brought to his Jesus moment as a result of being fired from the bank and and then his children give him some coins, right? And there's a sort of stepladder to the final breaking of Mr. Banks. And the last thing that happens is that Mary, when Mr. Banks turns his back, Lee puts on the floor this kite. <laughs> I get so emotional when I think about this kite. She leaves on the floor behind him this kite that his son has been carrying through the whole play. And all he talks about is how he wants to go flying kites with his dad, and his father has no interest in it, doesn't help him. So this kid has created this broken-down, pathetic little kite that we couldn't possibly ever fly, right? I mean, it's so sad. And so when Mr. Banks turns around and sees this kite, it just sums it all up for him. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's been right there in front of my face the whole time. This poor kid built a kite that will never fly. And it just, that kite, every time I would look at it when I turned around, it was like, what? And, and the other fun thing, of course, about a prop is that you set yourself up so that when you, when you need it as a trigger, yes. it's never the same thing. You never know what's going to go through your head. Something totally different happens every time. But it's within the certain narrative of what you've given. Does that make sense? Yes. So this kite, I mean, I couldn't even look at this kite without becoming very, very emotional. This kite was just the perfect trigger. And then one night... And this kite was the most broken down. It was sad. One night I turned around and laying on the floor was this perfect kite. They had changed the prop. They had replaced this prop that I couldn't even look at without becoming emotionally agitated. They they replaced it with some perfect kite that was at... And I just... Remember? Oh, I I remember. I flipped out. Backstage, and I was like, "What is going on with this kite? Why did you?" Ch-? And they thought the other one would look like it was falling apart, and they had to replace it. I said, "That's the point." <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Maria Day, who made the props for this for the show, the next night the old kite was back. Oh, I'm glad they didn't Never. throw it out. And then I, then they gave it to me closing night, and I had it here on my mantle for I don't know what the hell I did with that kite. For something that was so meaningful, I don't remember what happened to it. But it's lived in my house here for about a year because I loved it so much. Yeah. Know your props. Yeah. So here's yours. We're I know looking. I see it. There's this cardinal behind me, which I couldn't wait to there see it. Because when I read it, when I read your play, that was one of the moments I stuck out to me. When you find moments like that, you're like, this is the heart of him. And you're catching him in a bad weekend is you what your sure play is. You sure are, yeah. And the reason I laughed earlier is because you come across the most unsympathetic I know. But, <laughs> do I need to work on that? No, you don't. That I, which I think, as a writer, is amazing. Because I think most people, when they're writing stuff, they're like going to make themselves look amazing. You, but see, I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> see, I guess I really screwed up because I thought I was. Even the Chinese lady was like, "You, you have to be nicer to your parents." I was like, "I'm sorry, imitating Chinese people is not PC, but you should be nicer to your parents." What? Which I think is interesting that you, well, because you wrote an honest depiction of that weekend. and um, Which you were here for some of it. I was. I missed the drama. You sure did, but you were here for some of it. I, I was. I was here for some of it. You which sure is kind of not, which Were is you here funny. for the unveiling of the Cardinal? No, I was not here for that. Oh, that had happened earlier. I was here for the, don't let his cousins eat all our bagels. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. There's always, Italians are so 
territorial. I mean, they're the most generous people when it comes to food, but they're also like it's in the play too, yeah. right? You either you're either instructed to, to you're not eating enough or don't eat something. Yeah. Because it's intended for someone else, which is in the play. Yeah, but I mean, even the Red Cardinal, you know, you can build an entire relationship over the person who made that cardinal for you. you yes. Know? And that's what that is. Any Finding any type of clue, especially what, regardless, but I think sometimes in musical theater too, you just grab your prop and you run on stage because you're like, oh, it's a cane. And I think that any type of cues that actors and young performers can find that's going to make them more connected because sometimes you don't have enough time to connect to anything. And so if you can find these little tiny things that ground you to know, okay, this is, this is my safe spot. I think that that's important. Well, I think it's not just important. I think it's required. I mean, mm-hmm. a writer doesn't put, there's nothing that's just arbitrary, right? Yeah. I mean, I think of even Mary Poppins, those lamplighter things, those sticks with lights. Oh yeah. Stars. I mean, you, that's a star. You're carrying a star around. I mean, but sometimes the meanings are so, you have to look, I think you have to look for them. I don't, you can't put them on top of something. In other words, with this kite, right? For mm. example, I didn't seek out. I was just trying to be as sensitive, sensitive as I could for anything I could get my hands on to use as an actor on stage. And one day, and I just, I looked at this kite in one of the rehearsals, and it just moved me so deeply. And in looking at why it moved me deeply after the performance, I recognized what the keyhole was that I had to keep going through to make that kite continue to have mm. unexpected meaning for me. You know what I mean? Rather than set it up to have the same meaning every night, the kite became just a general vessel for something that right. was refilled with something new every, every night. Because, I mean, there were times when I looked at the kite and I saw my whole childhood flash before my eyes, wanting something and not getting it. and It became all kinds of different things. But I, I don't know. I, I think kites and clothes and... Yeah. Right? I mean, there's no... I always like to dress what I'm wearing in the show during rehearsal. Oh, my absolutely. own version of it. Or sh- at least the shoes. At least the shoes, yes. But that's an old... I mean, what's his name always talked about that? Lawrence Olivier? Yes, thank you. Yes. Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> yes. Well, I think... And now... Brad Pitt, no. Uh, Brad Pitt. L- L- Lawrence Olivier always talked about he couldn't even start rehearsal unless he had the shoes that he was going to wear in yeah. the show. Yeah, and so many people just rehearse in sneakers. But are you like that, too? I mean, I can't... I have to wear the shoes. Yeah, I have to wear the show shoes, too. Especially, I think, men's dress shoes have a heel. What kind of shoes do you wear? So I have to wear Wearing boat a, shoes. For sort of a moccasin. Moccasin thing. So as the writer uh, sitting back behind a table during the audition process, yeah. what were the most mistakes that you saw from performers coming in the room? What are people doing wrong? What did you see that was always glaring? People are not prepared enough. So everyone says that. They're just not prepared enough. And that is so shocking to me. How can a person not be prepared for an audition? Well, I think that there's... I think that what many actors do, and I had a wonderful m- music coach named Jack Lee. Remember Jack Lee? Mm-mm. He was the musical director on basically everything. Grand Hotel, I mean, he went all the way back to like, no, 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 net, for God's sake. One of the eminence degrees of the musical theater world. He always talked about anything, whether it was a song or a scene, you know, sitting by yourself and figuring everything out and all these little things that you're gonna do, and then walking in the room and kind of doing them all. Right. And he said, never, ever, ever do that. That's not the way you should prepare. So, because in in reality, that's sort of a simple way to prepare, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this here and this here, and I'm going to say that line there. And when you walk in, it comes across exactly like that. And it doesn't come across as deep preparation. It comes across as surface preparation, right? You gave yourself a bunch of bits that you thought fulfilled what the scene was about. 
the harder work I think is you know what it's like when you're creating a character you you search and search and search and search and search and search for the one tiny thing that will become your sort of keyhole into the mm-hmm. person you're playing yes and once you find that little thing like for example when I played you know this is not going to read on this podcast but when I played Tata one day I did this thing with my finger when I was talking to her and I just went like this like pointing to my eye I never do that in real life. Master gesture, right? I never do that. Right? Do you ever see me do that? No. Right. It just, I, just that physical gesture, the, the difference between James and Tata, this is where it all, it all started with this stupid physical gesture. And everything started to just make sense. I know that sounds crazy, Brad. No, not at all. But it took me like three weeks to, to accidentally discover my entree into the character, my pinhole in. And I think that when I say they don't, they're not prepared enough, and I know it's hard because it's just an audition, but... And you don't you, have three weeks to find You don't, it. but you've got to find something that puts you in that part. Something that you can identify with so deeply that we're not looking, we're looking at you, we're not looking at someone reading someone else's lines. That's hard work, isn't it? Oh, it, it definitely is. Right? Yes. I mean, and you say not prepared, were people not memorized, or they just hadn't had a choice? They just didn't know what they were doing. They didn't personalize it enough. Mm. You know, I mean, sometimes you're lucky, Brad. You know, you'll pick up a script, and you can personalize it within one minute. You instantly know what, you, what you're about. In yeah. That. Sometimes you're not. They didn't work on it enough so that they could walk in the room and experience the whole thing in an improvisational way, like it was happening for the first time. Because you have to be prepared enough to be in the moment. Prepared enough to be in the moment. And if to be not, in the moment you, you requires a lot of preparation. A lot of preparation. So that's what I'm talking yes. about. Yes. No, I mean, that makes complete sense to me. I, I just think it's interesting, no matter who I talk to, like Tara Rubin or James Walsh, I ask the same question. They always say, not prepared enough. And that is, that's just shocking to me because it's our jobs to but, be prepared. And, and so not prepared doesn't mean go home and put little bits and cutesy things on all the lines and then rehearse your bits and cutesy things it just means sit with the script over and over looking at those lines until you find something in it that is you can directly relate to in an impulsive urgent way right yeah that just is part of your expression of who you are at that moment in the existence of Brad Bradley. Yeah. That sounds so esoteric, but I, I think there's some truth No, I it. definitely oh. think it is. They just are not a, pr- a presence, a personality that... Like the guy, the man that we cast to play opposite you is William. I mean, from the moment he walked in the door, he had the part. Really? From the moment he walked in the door. You just wanted to spend the rest of your life with this guy. Yeah. There was something so completely sincere about him. Utterly, completely sincere. He wasn't trying to be anything... He came in, he had learned the wrong lines. They sent him the James sides. He's from Spain. <laughs> and, you know, he comes in and he's like, uh, we were like, any questions? Yes, uh, so Caroline is my mother and Jimmy is my father. It's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> well, no, Luis, they sent you the wrong sides. Oh, shit, he wasn't phased by it. He said, I'm going to need another half an hour to, to study these other sides, so I'll be back. How can you not love someone like that yeah. you know and he went out for half an hour and came back and he was great he was just so unaffected and that's a different kind of preparation right in a strange way yes because he was not putting he was not pretending to be anyone but himself exa- he was prepared to walk in the room and be completely himself which sounds so obvious that's what's hard some people say you have to come in in character and they, your performance starts the second you walk in the door 
And so you think, I have to be a different person now because I have to be someone else. For example, now that I've gotten this role, Brooke said that the thing that hooked her was not necessarily my audition, but a video I did, it gets better video. Yeah. And she said, that's the authenticity of you being yourself. It does get convoluted. When do you be yourself and when do you become the character? And I guess that's all part of the process. But in the audition setting, that's a lot to ask of a person. To just be yourself? Well, to be yourself and be the character at the same time. <laughs> right, but I think the point is, is that there is no character. It's you. Right. It's a version of you anyway, mm -hmm. right? So they would rather see you. When you walk in to read, I don't know what the character, James, no one really knows what the character of James is. Right. They're looking for someone to walk in who just is. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I do, but then I, my last big audition, I was auditioning to play an anchovy and understudy a squid. So it's was like that for, uh, for Spongebob. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you have, you definitely can't walk in being that. For musical theater, everything is heightened. So that is where you say there isn't really a difference in acting, but sometimes there is because they don't, when you're playing Igor, you can't walk in be yourself. You have to be a hunchback. Okay, but so if you're playing an anchovy, right? No, but seriously, <laughs> I, I mean, if you're going to play an anchovy. <laughs> I didn't get it, by the way. <laughs> what is an anchovy? But what, what? What is an anchovy, right? You're squished and you have a weird voice. It's a cartoon. Or you're not. Or you're squished and you have a big old Royal Shakespeare voice, you know? Yes. I just think it's whatever feels the most authentic. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. You draw conclusions about what an art anchovy is, which I don't think that anyone else has drawn those conclusions. They want someone to walk in who is not necessarily going to fit the bill of what they think an anchovy is. Right. But just be an anchovy, whatever that is, you know? <laughs> does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't... I'm glad I'm playing a human. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't envy you having to play an anchovy, to be honest with you. <laughs> was it a big part? <laughs> no, the squid would, would have been a big part. Yeah. But it was just understudy the squid. Oh, I... If not to play the squid. What's the squid's name? Yeah, Mr. Squidward. I hope it runs a long time and I get I it. I think it will be. I think well, it will, that's, right? Well, that's... Hey, you know what? But what's interesting is that now, I, because I didn't get that, now I'm going to do a role of a lifetime Thank for you. me. Thank so you. Thank you. The hell with you, Spongebob. No, but I think it's so interesting that, like, I'm learning this as a person, not getting a Broadway show. Now I'm actually doing... Creating a role off-Broadway in an original piece. So you never know what life is happening. That's right. And I think sometimes when you think of what's happening to you is actually what's happening for you. Well, exactly, which is why I'm, you know, I have friends recently come to me, have come to me and said, well, I, I'm really, I think, I'm really thinking of quitting the business. I and mean, I always say, well, then you probably should. I mean, you probably should because there, there's another thousand people that'll take your place, yeah. you know. So, I, but I think it gets into, again, what you were asking earlier. Are you in this business to book jobs, I know that's part of the business, absolutely. But ultimately, to book jobs, I think your spiritual focus, there's, this is real work. I mean, this is one of the, the greatest callings a person oh, can yes, have. Yes. To get up in front of a bunch of people in the dark and act out their lives. Yep. It's a great calling. It's a great spiritual calling. Yes, it is. So you're right. How do you translate that into playing an Ardine? An Ardine. An Ardine. A Saldine. Or an anchovy? Is it a sardine? It was an anchovy. No, it's a sardine. I think it was. It was called a sardine, but it's because aren't anchovies an dead? They are dead. It's like a version of a sardine. Right? Yeah. What's well, called? I mean, sardine. sardines are dead too. Yeah. But they don't sing either, though. They don't. No. They don't. My father loves sardines. I do not like sardines. And yeah, anchovies. I don't really like sardines mm. either. How about people when they like want to put them on pizzas? Yes. 
Ugh. Right? What's fascinating is that when you are struggling in your, your performing career, then you could work on your, your writing or you can work on something else. That's where right. my podcast came out of wanting to be more creative. It's like, yes, you want to leave this business all the time, but you have to find something that's fulfilling you creatively and right. not waiting for the phone to ring, which we talked about and, at the beginning. And also, you want to find something that there are tons of what ifs in here for you as an actor mm-hmm. or any actor. What if I was in a 17-year-old, 17-year relationship? What, what if? What would that be like? You know, in terms of spir- the spirituality of this material, I think there's, you know, I think it offers us the most incredible opportunities. You know, you were talking about your mom. Now oh. you get to be in a play where you get to do in your play life what you, you don't really do in your real life. Yes. That's, there's a tremendous urgency in that, right? Yeah. Yes. You know, I mean, you're not in a relationship right now, right? Sadly, no. Well, well but I know Hello, that... I'm, I, I'm single. No, single and ready to mingle. <laughs> um, but I know that that's something that you would like. Yes. So now you get to go up on... Be in a relationship with, with a hot, very yeah. sweet hot yeah. Latin guy. You get to live that... Um, is that is this, does it sound like no, bullshit? I no, mean, it's I, not bullshit. That's part of the best part of being an actor, right? Yeah. You get to be what you you want to be, yeah. you know. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. I don't know. My, my I came to this business after I had started on the other side of the camera, like I said. So when I came to the theater world at age thirty, and my had just lost my partner who died of AIDS, I, I came to this business. It was a spiritual calling. Yeah, it really was, and I and I said to myself at that time, if you're going to do this, you can never stop doing it. That's the rule. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? Yes. You ha- you're you're doing this for a spiritual reason, personal spiritual reason. No matter what, no matter what happens, you're not going to allow success or lack of success to be the the thing that keeps you in or doesn't keep you in the business. It's yeah. not the reason you're in it. That's a very important thing, and that's why. Stuff like this is fun for yeah. me to do, you know? Well, I wanted to ask you a question, and uh, ironically, you just brought it up. Uh, that is a little personal. In the play, your mother talks about the chemo and how hard it is, and she's saying to James, character James, you don't know, you don't know. And your response is, I do know. And when I was working with you on the audition, you're like, I, you're like that's a reference to my lover dying yeah. of AIDS, Brad. And it's not that's not in the script. No. And that is something that you as a person had to deal with and now you're directing a play that's about a new HIV epidemic. Yeah. How is that for you? And this is personal, I mean, AIDS right now is forgotten, but yet you lost your first lover and now you're re you're refocusing on that. How is you have to deal with that as a gay person well, watching <clears throat> destruction and then now ignorance? Well, the thing is what attracted me to the HIV piece was not some calling because I had lived through it and blah blah blah. I was called, I, I was curious because it was an immersive piece. I liked mm. what was, you know, the concept of it. And I discovered a deeper connection to the whole AIDS journey than I even thought I had. Mm. So I didn't go to it with a preconceived agenda or mission, or, but one kind of came out of it in an odd way, right. which was I'm dealing with a bunch of young people that don't know anything about it. So just my sharing the story of what happened to me, which is a pretty good story, it has helped them artistically to realize these experiences, I, I, these act, our actors. Yeah. To your point, it's about the character building that comes with life and putting it right back into your art. But figuring out a way to do that that doesn't come off as preachy or, you know, I'm directing this AIDS piece because it's an important subject for me. Well, not, I mean, it is, you know. Right. But that's not what attracted me to it. Yeah. But that's, oddly enough, my involvement with it 
I think has made a big difference with the people involved with it. Just, does that make sense? Just because it was my life. Yeah, and it. I don't think a lot of people know people that lost people to AIDS because the world is, thank goodness, changed now. So to hear not many people around say, I lost a lover to AIDS anymore. This is still within our lifetime. This isn't going away. It hasn't gone away as your piece is doing. And it's current and there's a new undercurrent. And so it was just, I found it interesting that it's not even in your play, but you have one line that it's just two words, I know. And Well, I'm glad you picked up on that because that's very subtle. You know, she's going on and on about you and your brother. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like. Your father's sick. And I just say, I know. And she knows I know. Yes. So there's so much unsaid in that. Michael, right over the audience's head. Yeah. But what shouldn't go over the audience's head is, oh, there's something they both know about that's yes. not really spelled out here. But Because the conversation shifts right then and there. And so I, I love that. Well, this has been a fantastic podcast. So, oh, uh, thank you. Your play opens September 15th. September 15th. Yeah. Runs through October 1st. That's correct. At Queen's Theater. That's correct. And it's called Jimmy and Carolyn. Right. And if you've never been to the Queen's Theater, we'll sing a great play and sing Brad, a new play, is one great reason to come. Yes. But also, if you've never been out there, it's a really a wonderful destination. Yeah. For se- In September. I mean, that Oh, it's going to be lovely. That big sphere and it's yeah. beautiful. I've oh. never been there before. It's oh, absolutely it, beautiful. And the yeah. fountain is gorgeous yeah it's great out there i mean was the world's fair is that what it was built for yeah it's not too far from the stadium no but that that sphere is really worth seeing because the fountain at that sphere is it's the most it's the most spectacular fountain in new york and i'm including the one in columbus circle wow or the i guess bethesda is pretty nice but this one yeah that one's this one's pretty nice but those the the fountain in the center of that world's fair is unreal yeah I don't know if you realize this, but I end every podcast with a song, and I oh, do. Oh, you do? I do. What are we going to sing? Well, we're not going to sing it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're going to pick a song that right now in your life, what represents you, where you are in your journey, or what represents the play? What, how would you want this to end if you could pick All right, song I'll, I'm just going to pick. It's my favorite karaoke song. It reminds me of growing up here in Rhode Island. It's very 70s. Brandy. Great. Do you know Brandy? I do not. You don't? No. All right. Well, you'll have a new karaoke song. It's a great song. Well, who is it? Neil Diamond? Uh, no, it's... Barry um, Manilow? No. I love it so much. <laughs> I don't know. Looking Glass. Looking Glass. Yeah, it's the kind of thing you'd hear at a Renaissance Fair, probably. Oh, all right. No, but it's a great... It's all about, like, a, there's a port in a western. It's all about ships and lockets. And oh. there's a port in a western bay, and it serves a hundred ships a day. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. It's got that 70s, early 70s AM radio feeling. Yeah. 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 Perfect. There's a port on a western bay And it serves a hundred ships a day Lonely sailors pass the time away And talk about their homes And there's a girl in this harbor town And she works Laying whiskey down They say brandy Fetch another round She serves them whiskey and wine They say they say brandy You're a fine girl What a good wife you would be Yeah, your eyes could steal a sailor from the sea Brandy wears a braided chain Silver from the north of Spain, a locket that bears the name of a man that Brandy loves.
came on a summer's day Bringing gifts from far away But it made it clear it couldn't stay No horror was his home The sailor said, bring me silent town and loves a man who's not around she still can hear him say she hears him say brandy you're a 